the greatest fresh start, the greatest new start that history has ever known with the fresh start that we all seek, or most of us will seek, as we come to a new year. Um, in light of that, I was doing some research on New Year's. Uh, get a little statistics for you, some quotes. Uh, let me start you off with the quotes here. Bill Vaughn says, Youth is when you're allowed to stay up late on New Year's Eve. Middle age is when you're forced to. <laughs> An anonymous prayer from last year was, Dear God, my prayer for 2014 is a thin body and a fat wallet. Please don't mix them up like you did last year. <laughs> Our great American cultural icon, Homer Simpson, said to his wife in one of the episodes, You want me to spend more time with Dad? What about my New Year's resolution? I had to throw that in because my dad is here visiting today. <clears throat> when it comes to New Year's, uh, we all want a new beginning. I think we all want some kind of a fresh start. Um, we, we like the idea of embracing an opportunity. We, we like to seize the momentum and let that carry us in. And every year, a lot of us, even if we don't do New Year's resolutions, I think we think about what can I accomplish this year? And some of us will draw that out in the form of goals or New Year's resolutions. And I want you to think of these as a path. And these New Year's resolutions, they're a path. They have a purpose. But they also need a power to keep you doing them. Um, if we could put up on the... There we go. These are the top 10 New Year's resolutions for 2014. This is the path most Americans took last year. Let me read them to you. Losing weight. Getting organized, spending less, saving more, enjoying life to the fullest, staying fit and healthy, learning something exciting, quit smoking, helping others in their dreams, falling in love, and spending more time with family. Now, this isn't necessarily a bad path, but there's two potential pitfalls I see in them. One is the issue of purpose. These are mainly, at their core, most of them, about you. I hope you see that. Um, the second thing is the issue of power. We tend to be powerless in accomplishing our New Year's resolution. Is that a fair statement? You know, can all God's people say amen? All right, but what if, I want to ask you this morning, what if, what if we charted a gospel-centered course, a gospel-centered path for 2015? What would it look like? Can we find a better path than this? Can we find a stronger purpose than what's behind these? And can we find a better power that keeps us anchored and fueled for the course ahead? Well, folks, in Matthew chapter 28, when we read about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we find yes as the answer to all of these. This morning, we're going to look at the the path of scripture, and we're going to look at following God's path, we're going to look at knowing God's purpose, and then we're going to see how we can be transformed by God's power over death. Turn with me either in your bulletin or to your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. I want to start right here with the first verse. Now after the Sabbath, towards dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went, path, went to see the tomb. Brothers and sisters, to chart a gospel-centered course for 2015, we need to follow God's path. And I think there's an interesting parallel from New Year's resolutions, if you think about this with me. 
When, when you chart a course of your New Year's resolutions, you chart a course for one path, but it means you must exclude other paths. For me, weight loss, right? I have to chart a path to the veggie aisle at the grocery store and stop charting a path to the drive-thru. I have to chart a path to 24-hour fitness and not chart a path to the sofa. Right? Make sense? So it is with God's path. Let's see how this works out as we move on in the text. And let's look at the two paths that will emerge beginning in verse 2. The guard's path and God's path, the path of the ladies, the gospel-centered path. Let's read verse 2. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came back and rolled the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. We'll stop right there. In, in these verses, we see paths diverge. Let me, let me just draw this out for you. Let me show you how there is a point of departure that happens when the angel talks. In verse 2, there was an earthquake. Did you catch the four in verse 2? It means because. There was a great earthquake because an angel of the Lord descended. Friends, I want you to think of a comet impacting the earth and seismic activity erupting from the epicenter. If you think of angels like this, next slide, there we go, all right, let's change that. Think of the comet, think of it dropping. Here's how my son would relate to this. <laughs> Iron Man dropping from the sky, landing with such an impact that he cracks the asphalt. Only with an angel it leads to seismic activity. Another way that you can think about this is in verse 3, where it says his appearance, his form, was like lightning. Now this does not mean that a walking lightning bolt like sprouted legs, arms, and a head and started walking around. No, that's not what the intent is. As I read the commentaries, the point of this is that the angel was so bright, so brilliant, so intense, the only thing that the author could compare it to was like a lightning bolt. Now as you take a brilliant, bright, white flash and you think about earthquakes and seismic activities, I want you to think and have in mind in the movies when a nuclear explosion goes off. There's that boom, flash of bright white light. You know what I'm talking about? And then there's the epicenter the as it rumbles outwards, and there's a force blast that explodes from it. This is what's going on. And I hope you see how this explains in verse 4 what the guards were like, where they were terrified and they were as dead men. These guards are Roman soldiers. Now, I know we have friends here in the Navy and the Air Force. It's only by the grace of God me, an Army guy, can say friends in the Navy. But um, I think you know what it's like to serve in the greatest military that the world knows right now. What does it take to make a trained soldier afraid? I hope verse 2, earthquake, Iron Man, nuclear blast. Okay, yeah, I'm there. I'm scared too. All right? But this is going to chart a path of divergence where we will see God's path, we will see the guard's path. Because in verse 5, these guards, think of them as over here, trembling and scared. Think of the ladies. What do the guards need to hear? What the angel says. But read with me again in verse 5. Who does the angel speak to? He doesn't speak to the guards. He whoop, turns his back. Do not be afraid. Guards are over here like, come on, I need to hear that too. 
From this point in the text, we will see the path of the ladies, the gospel-centered path, the path of God, and then we will come back to and hit the path of the guards. Now let's look at God's path. We'll pick it up back in verse 5 and go down to verse 10. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know you seek Jesus who was crucified. For he is not here, he is risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings! And they came up and took hold of his feet and they worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Friends, let's analyze this. Let's observe this. And so let's see, let's see what we can learn about God's gospel-centered path for you and me. First, as you trace the text, there's an interruption. The ladies in verse 1 are heading to the tomb. If you read this account in Mark 16, verses 1 and 2, and Luke 24, verses 1 and 2, you'll see that the ladies are taking embalming spices. They're going to honor their friend, their mentor, their rabbi, their teacher, and give him a proper Jewish burial. This is a good path, but what happens? God comes and he interrupts this path. We need to be willing to let God interrupt our paths this year. The next thing, in verses 5 and 6, so jump down verse 1, 5 and 6, hear this again. I know you seek Jesus, who what? Was crucified, but now he is risen. Isn't that the gospel in a nutshell? Christ has died, Christ has risen. Interruption, gospel proclaimed, and now watch what happens. There are gospel commands. In verse 7, the angel says, go. Go quickly. Tell. So there's interruptions, there's the proclamation of the gospel, and then there's commands to us. A gospel-centered path is one where we are directed by the Lord. It is his path, not ours. But there is a gospel response in verse 8. What do the ladies do? Well, they go quickly. I actually kind of love this, and it makes me think of my daughter, my little three-year-old Lily. Uh, I don't ever want her to get old. I want her to stay, like, three years old forever. Um, every night when she goes to bed, uh, I, I call out to her, and we can be on different floors, and the result is, by and large, the same. Lily, honey, you need to clean up your toys and get ready for bed. I hear this, okay, Dad. And she runs to go do what I've asked her to do. She goes quickly. That's what this path makes me think of. These ladies, they go quickly in response to the gospel. Please catch that. Gospel precedes command. Good news is announced. Gospel means good news. It is announced, and then there is the command. They go quickly. But it's not just some, some fearful thing that they do. The passage says there is great joy in their path. And when it says that there is fear in verse 8, I want you to hear awe and wonder. I was like, the guards are fear, the ladies fear, but they have joy. That doesn't make sense. No, every commentary I looked at, the guards, oh, that fear. 
Fear, terrified, as dead men. The ladies, that word fear can mean awe and wonder. So on a gospel-centered path, when God interrupts us, he announces his gospel. He gives us commands. We respond in obedience. But there is joy when the good news is announced. It produces joy and worship and reverence and awe and wonder in our lives. Finally, in verses 9 and 10, there is gospel renewal. Jesus meets them on the path. And now watch how this pattern happens all over again. He interrupts their path. He says, greetings. That word can also mean rejoice. I was dead. I'm back. The very sight of him is good news. There is an interruption. There is a gospel. He gives them a command. Go and tell. What do they do? They bow down and worship. They try to grab his feet and worship. There's awe. There's reverence. There's joy. There's wonder. This is the gospel-centered path, a life lived under God's commands, but it's not just religion. It's not a command to go and do, and then God will accept you. It's the good news of what he has done. He has accepted you. He has forgiven you, and now we get to freefully and joyfully follow and obey. That makes all the difference in the world, and I hope you grasp that. Now, let me ask you two questions. Will you let God interrupt your path this year? even if you determine that it is a good path. You know, what, what currently drives your path? Let me ask you this. Is it your career? Is it a bank account? Is it pride in my IRA and my retirement? Is it a marital status? I know for some of you, it's a lack of marital status. That, that you make a lot of decisions, you spend a lot of mental energy thinking about, pondering, is it your parental status or lack thereof? Do you feel your biological clock ticking? Is it sex or is it sexuality? Let me help you answer this question of what drives your life, what is at the center of your life. When you have a bad day, when you have one of those just, oh, this was awful, this is horrible, I want to shoot myself. When you have one of those days, fill in the blank to this. At least I've got this. If the answer to that is not Jesus Christ, we're not on a gospel-centered path. We're on some kind of other centered path. Second question I would like to ask of you is, are you okay with God telling you what to do? This is American society, fierce, rugged individualism, the American dream. Our society tends to like it the other way around, where we get something from God, and then sometimes we get to tell God what to do. Do you remember the New Year's prayer? Oh, Lord, give me a thin body and a fat bank account. Don't screw it up this year. We like a God that supports our goals. We like a God that is into self-help, that is a coach or a crutch. We don't always like a God that is a God and therefore gets to demand of us let me just ask, lovingly, lovingly. I know I kind of come across with like this stern tone. I'm really just excited. But let me, let me ask you lovingly, if this is how you're living your life, what do you think God's attitude is towards your attitude towards him? Just hang on to that, friends. There's a better answer at the end of this. Having seen the gospel-centered path, let's now go down the path with the guards and let's look at the course we are to follow, the course we are to reject. We left the guards 
in bad news. They were terrified. Not gospel, good news. They're in bad news. Let's dig a little deeper into this, this terrorized state that they're in. On one hand, think about this. They or their friends just tortured and murdered a man who has come back from the dead. Isn't that the plot of most horror movies? Like, this doesn't end well. Like, I've seen the ending to this movie. Fast forward, I'm dead. But let's look at the other hand. Are they going to go back to their officers, their centurions, and say, I failed? The tomb is empty, there is no body? They can't. They can't. In that day and age, under Roman military law, they would have been executed. The likely conclusions, if you don't believe the resurrection, are that the disciples overpowered them and stole the body, the guards fell asleep and stole the body, or the guards were accomplices and helped steal the body. Every three, one of the, all, you know what I'm trying to say, all three of those would have gotten them executed. There is a fear of death that is going to propel their path. Let's read more of their response to this bad news. We'll pick it up in verse 11. While they, the women, were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they had given a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, watch this, tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, his authorities, their officers, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this very day. When their life is interrupted by God, they receive it as bad news, but they follow a human path of salvation. They seek a human deliverance, even though right there, empty tomb, power, victory over death. They still chart a course seeking the wrong chief priest, the wrong high priest, and their lie, the deceit. I would love to know, I would love to know how many Jewish people bought into the lie and didn't get to meet Jesus or didn't get to learn about the power over death that he brings and that he frees us from. Let's read verse 15 again. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Matthew is writing 30 to 40 years later. It's still happening. All right? When you go outside of the Bible to the literature of the Roman day, there is an early Christian father, a man named Justin Martyr, who's writing in 165 AD, so 130 years after the resurrection, and he is still having dialogue with his Jewish friends who believe that the disciples stole the body. Look at how this lie spreads and carries. Upwards of 130 years later, it's still intact. It's recorded in history. If you want to read it, Google Justin Martyr, Dialogue with Trifo, chapter 108. It's there. You can get it free online. Now, let me ask you a question that flows from this. Do you realize when you have the opportunity to tell the truth about Jesus and you don't, you're following the guard's path? Before you get, like, too offended and mad at me, just let me ask you, just stay with me. 
consider this, hear this. The guards exchanged truth for money and security, for comfort, but also for freedom from the fear of death. They blocked other people from hearing about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When somebody asks you, and friends, I'm there with you, all right? I get, I get a yes to most of these as well. Um, do you try to explain it with candy coating? Do you try to do it, answer the questions about Jesus in such a way that you can maintain the friendship, your reputation, or the way that you're perceived? Do you try to answer in such a way that it won't affect the promotion or the raise? Do you keep it at polite conversation because in America we don't talk about politics, sex, and religion and hope that the subject won't come up? On one hand, I'll grant you that there is wisdom that needs to guide our mouth. I am a big example of that. But on the other hand, sooner or later, we need to be talking about Jesus to people that are dying. So when we do this, when you and I do this, there is an exchange, just like the guards. I give up something true, or I only give a partial truth, and the person gives me, in return, friendship, a raise, peace, praise, whatever. They call me tolerant. I'm the tolerant Christian. And it keeps that person from potentially knowing the thing they need the most. They need Jesus too. That's what the guards did. And let's just own that we can do that too. Friends, there's hope at the end of this path. So we've seen God's gospel-centered path. We've seen the guards' path. Just as we have to chart one course and not chart another to lose weight, we have to chart a course down God's path and not the guards' path. Having seen the gospel-centered path, let's look at a gospel-centered purpose. Next slide. And next, there we go. We must know God's purpose. All right, can you go next slide? Let's bring up those top ten resolutions again. I said one of the issues with these is an issue of purpose. Do you see how these seven, by and large, are about self-improvement? I'm not against self-improvement. I need to lose weight. I get it. All right? Um, but seven of the ten... And, and the other two, uh, eight and nine, in some ways, those can be about self-improvement. Now, self-improvement isn't bad, but let's hold these up and this emphasis on self, if I could gently say maybe some self-centeredness in light of the two greatest commands Jesus gives us. Love God with all you got and love other people as you love yourself. I just think if we use that, there's room for a corrective to this where we can bring out some of that a little bit more in our path with our purpose. Let's return to the text and actually see how we can get a gospel-centered purpose to go with our gospel-centered path. It helps when you don't turn your Bible upside down. All right, so we'll pick it up in verse 16 and we'll go to verse 20. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age." Did you see the path recreated in the disciples' lives? Did you see God reproduce the path? There was an interruption. Ladies tell the disciples, go to the mountain. 
There's gospel. Jesus is alive. Go to the mountain. There's a gospel response. Obedience. They go. When they see Jesus, they worship. Now, when it says they doubted in here, it means like they hesitated. There's a really good story about a man named Doubting Thomas uh, in Luke's gospel where he says, I won't believe until I, you know, put my finger in the side, see the holes from the nails. He does that. He falls down and he worships. So there's a gospel response. They go. They see their Savior. They see their friend. And they worship joy, awe, wonder. Then there's gospel commands. Jesus says, hey, I got all the authority. Go. Baptize and teach. Tell people about me. Do you see that path we created? This is the purpose. This is the gospel-centered purpose. It's making disciples who worship Jesus and growing them in Jesus. And folks, this has been God's purpose for humanity from Genesis, the beginning of the Bible, to Revelation, the very end of the Bible. Consider this with me. We're just going to go through a little trail of Scripture and see an overview of the, of the Bible. In Genesis 1, we were given the task to multiply, thus filling the world with worshipers. In Genesis 9, when the flood ends, Noah is given the task to multiply, to fill the earth with worshipers. Let's throw up the next slide. We're going to see how this continues in the Old Testament. Next slide. Here we go. This is what's called the covenant at Sinai, Exodus 19. God has descended. He has interrupted. He has drawn near. He has just delivered his people from uh, bondage and slavery in Egypt. Good news. Now, therefore, he says to Israel, you shall be my treasured possession. Hang on to that. Among all peoples. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. Hang on to that one, too. And a holy nation. Hang on to that. Treasure possession, kingdom of priests, holy nation. Let's go next slide. Look at how this is brought forward in the New Testament. Peter writes to his people, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim. Hear the purpose? That you may proclaim what? The excellencies of him who called you from darkness into light. And now watch how the Bible closes out when this mission, this gospel-centered path is complete. Look at what God proclaims at the end of the Bible. Next slide. And I heard a loud voice. This is John. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as God. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that good news? I cannot think of better news. Brothers and sisters, God calls us to participate in a play on the stage of history. If you've been looking for something grand, that's something bigger, I need more in life, consider this. Does it get grander than this? Does it get bigger than this? When I lived in L.A., almost everyone I met was trying to break out of the small acting gig or the small music gig and just get some slice of a TV show, even if it was a supporting part, or to be like a backup bass player in a studio. They wanted to be part of something larger. Friends, here it is. Let's embrace the path. Let's embrace the purpose. And let's move on to power. Next slide. We must be changed by God's power. All right, so we have a gospel-centered path. We have a gospel-centered purpose. Now we need the power to stick with them. I'm going to beat up on New Year's resolutions one final time. Do you remember at the beginning I said the second issue was an issue of power? We largely failed to accomplish them. I think some of the people kind of snickered. 
Um, let's look at this. It, just, just to say we don't accomplish them does not even meet the statistics. A study in the Journal of Clinical Psychology found that there is a 92% fail rate for New Year's resolutions. And to get more staying power, here's what they recommend. Men, we are more likely to succeed when we do goal setting, incremental goal setting. Women, you are more likely to succeed when you make your goals public and share with your friends. I was like, that's not stereotypical. Men, goal setting, ladies, relationships. Um, I don't know, maybe I'm the only person that thought it was funny. Uh, however, using these techniques, I don't know, they, 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 they got improvement, but listen to the results. When men goal set, they were 22% more likely to accomplish their New Year's resolutions. One in four men, that's not power. That's not a dramatic increase. Ladies, 10%. I'm like, why'd you even mention it? <laughs> like one in 10 ladies, yeah, that's not power. Friends, we need God's power. We need the gospel at the center of our life driving us. And I want you to see that the gospel is like a slingshot. All right, think with me for a minute. I love this. This is like, you're going to hear this from me for the next two years or however long I'm here. Slingshot. One rubber band, you pull it back. Another rubber band, you pull it back. And objects in that little doohickey, that's a technical term, you let go of the doohickey, it propels the object forward, right? Everybody with me? Okay, all right, watch this. Let me find my place. Oh, yeah. Right. So think of yourselves as the object getting propelled by the slingshot. All right, so on one rubber band, actually, I think I have the time, so let me talk about the guards. Watch how the guards, the bribe, one rubber band, freedom from the fear of death, another rubber band, it propels them down a path of deceit. Does that make sense? Okay, us, all right, I want to change out the rubber bands. Let's make one rubber band, go with me here, the sin in the text and how we identify with it. Let's just be honest. We don't always meet God's standards. Let's go there. Let's go there as God's people, and let's crank back on this rubber band. After all, how far does a slingshot shoot? As far back as you pull it. The guards' fear of death is what suppressed the truth in their life. Okay, we said we do it too. So let's crank into that. Let's pull back on the rubber band. Fear of death. When you pull on this rubber band, how are you like the guards? Do you say, I'll lose my promotion? That's career death. That's financial death. That might even be the death of your identity and one of the deepest things about who you are. You see that's fear of death? I'll lose my friend. Well, that's relational death. I'll be humiliated and alienated amongst my peers. I worked in a biochemistry lab, and no one wanted to talk about Jesus. I get this one. There can be social death. I'll be known as stupid, ignorant, or worst of all in our society, I will be viewed as intolerant. That is the death of your reputation. Are you there with me? Have we cranked down on this rubber band? All right, now watch the good news. That's the other rubber band. So as we pull back on the rubber band of sin in the text and identify with it, well... Let's pull back on the rubber band of what God has done in history through his son, Jesus Christ, for us. In scripture, there is a theme that lines up with this text. It's the two times you hear, don't be afraid, and it's the time you hear, I am with you. 
All right? In Scripture, when God gets ready, in the Old Testament especially, when God gets ready to do an act of deliverance, he sends a messenger or he draws near and says, Fear not, do not be afraid, I am with you. Watch. In Genesis 15, when God is going to make a covenant with Abraham to advance his plan of salvation that all the nations of the earth will be blessed, he draws near to Abraham and says, Fear not. After Abraham dies, his son Isaac comes on the scene in Genesis 26. God continues this path through Isaac. He draws near to him to advance his plan of salvation and says, fear not. In Genesis 46, when God is going to continue to advance this plan to make a nation that one day all the nations of the earth will be blessed, he comes to Jacob, Isaac's son, sends him down to Egypt to deliver his family from a famine, and he says, do not be afraid. I will go with you. I'm with you down into Egypt, and I will bring you up. In Exodus 14, when Pharaoh's army is bearing down on the Israelites to kill them, God's messenger announces at the parting of the Red Sea, fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord. In Numbers 21, when they, after they have crossed through the Red Sea, they're getting ready to enter the promised land. A foreign king named Og, king of Bashan, weird name, let's roll with it. He tries to block Israel from entering the promised land. God comes to his people and says, fear not, do not fear him. I will give him into your hand. In Judges 6, when God is getting ready to deliver Israel from the oppression of the Midianites, that's a one fun one to say, God draws near to Gideon and tells him twice, I am with you. When God is getting ready in the New Testament to deliver all people from Satan, sin, and death, an angel shows up and says to John the Baptist's father, do not be afraid. To Jesus' father, Joseph, says do not be afraid. To Jesus' mother, Mary, and says do not be afraid. The people of days gone by that are our brothers and sisters, they got the benefit of hearing this as God was getting ready to do something. They got the benefit and the empowerment and the encourage from a promise. How much better is it for us when we hear for the first time in this text from not just an angel, but Jesus, God's son, do not be afraid. Look what God has done. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Death holds no power over you anymore. Is that good news, Harbor City? Man, you and I get the benefit of something even better than the words, don't be afraid. God speaks in this text through an empty tomb. Do not ever lose the power of that. We get an act of God's deliverance. We get something more than the promise of God's deliverance. Christ is risen. He has beaten death. The tomb is empty. So Jesus can really say, no, no, no. I am with you. I'm not in the tomb. I am with you. We can take heart. We can be encouraged. We can be emboldened. We have pulled back the slingshot of the gospel. We have let go. Do you feel yourself ready to be propelled on this path with God's purpose in mind? When you do, here are some ways you can apply this in your life. Let's get you trained. Let's get you trained in how to share your faith. Some of you are like, John, this isn't fair. I, I want to do it. I just don't know how. Raise your hand. Let's talk about that. Let's figure it out. Let's set aside some time. Let's do it. Let's also get you trained. So that was baptize. If the Great Commission says go, baptize, let's get you trained in how to share your faith. For the part of the Great Commission that says teach, let's get you trained in how to slingshot another person or help slingshot them. 
Let's get you trained to teach someone how to walk in Jesus' ways. And think about it. Won't that make you a better parent when you've got kids to raise anyways? Life groups. Let's help slingshot each other with the gospel. I mean, don't, like, shoot each other. <laughs> I don't mean that. But with the fear of death conquered, we can dig into our fears together. We can talk about them. It's okay. We can talk about them. They don't hold power over us anymore. And we can work through issues of sin and gospel together in love. Another application would be life groups. Find a way to live out this passage together. It's not just about you and your marketplace. That's very, very important. Don't get me wrong. It's not just about you and your neighborhood, even though some of you do wonderful things in your neighborhoods. It's about us together. And I just don't want us to lose sight of the communal aspect. All right, in John chapter 13, verses 34 through 36, Jesus says, the world will know you are my disciples by the way you love each other. We can't do it alone. We've got to do it together. That's one of the big reasons we throw those standabouts. I want to encourage you to go to them. Make the time to go to them. Maybe even go to a local Starbucks, or if you don't like, you know, the man, the corporate. If you're one of those, like my wife, who's like the hipster indie type, who likes the, um, like the small mom and pop type thing, most coffee shops, they have community events posted on one of those, you know, little board tacky things. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, go look at those. Figure out in your life group what you can show up to together. Get to love on people. Get to know people. Get to meet people. Bless them and see if relationships don't develop where you can talk to them about Jesus. As a church, I just want to encourage you, and this is not like some shameless promotion for the ministry I lead, but fill out a card. The Great Commission goes forth on Sunday mornings. We need to be a warm, welcoming, friendly environment where people know the love of Christ. We need other people to make that happen. Thank you to those of you who already do, by the way. And if you're already participating, or if you're like, man, you know, I really kind of want to, like, help, think about becoming a leader. Think about taking on some of the work of ministry, that, that royal priesthood that we all are, not just pastors or staff, but that we all are, and maybe free up some of the staff to go add another ministry to Harbor City Church, or to have more time to dig deeper into a person's life to get them trained and equipped, or become a trainer and an equipper yourself. Finally, all right, I want to emphasize, I'm going to talk from my experience in other churches, not Harbor City Church. As a church, let's live out this great commission, God's path, with his purpose, from his power, by seeking unity. Let's not get bogged down in arguing over really insignificant minor things. I've been in churches, I've heard the horror stories and the wars that happen over pew color carpet color, who takes out the trash, how the tables should be set up. It's sort of like in light of this passage, are you kidding me? We're not that way. I just want to make sure we seek an even higher degree of unity so that we can all go out that way. Friends, let's hold God's path and purpose before us this year and be fueled by his power. Let me pray for you. Father God, thank you for this time. Thank you for this opportunity to speak the truths of you. Father, I just pray that you pushed me out of the way and you sent your Holy Spirit to change people's lives. Let us live in light of your path and your purpose, not necessarily our own, fueled by the power that only your victory over death can bring. Amen.